Manchester City Centre has a familiar sound to it. It sounds like the hum of office workers letting off steam at an Ancoats bar. It sounds like the clinking and clanging of a King Street restaurant. It sounds like the screeching of a passing tram through Manchester, Victoria. And, for decades, the northern quarter has sounded like the drumbeat of your next favourite band, playing their first gig to their first big crowd, leaking through the doors of an iconic club. It's a sound and a venue, now in real jeopardy. This is the Manchester Weekly from The Mill. Hello there, welcome to this week's episode of the Manchester Weekly with me, Daryl Morris. And this week, instead of Yoshi Herman, the Mills' Jack Delhanty. Jack, hello there. Hi, Daryl, you all right? Yes, I'm very well. All the better for having you on the podcast, my friend. I think you're better I think you're better than Yoshi. Don't tell Yoshi, but I think you're better than him. There you go. I'll keep it to myself. Yeah, I've put that out there. There we go. Uh, no, I jest, of course. You're both brilliant. Lots to get onto uh, on this week's podcast, including another another row around the Night and Day Cafe in the centre of Manchester that won't surprise you. We've also got an absolute corker of a story in the mill this week from you, Jack, about private investigators. You've been getting to know those people, the sort of sleuths, right, who you can, who people can hire to help them, well, investigate stuff. Yeah, that's right. They're a really um, interesting bunch in the way that they do business as kind of local independents, if you want to put it that way, is um, quite fascinating, actually. Great. Okay, well, uh, we'll pick your brains on that shortly. Let's get to our top story this week, and uh, the top story pretty much everywhere, actually, which is that we have a new Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, is in number 10, and we find ourselves not only welcoming yet another Prime Minister, but also, yet again, trying to figure out their priorities, and especially, as far as we're concerned, around kind of levelling up and the north of England, etc. Where are we at? When it comes to levelling up, of course, that was um, a Boris Johnson pledge back in 2019, this kind of idea that you would narrow disparities between the north and south of England by pumping investment and new kind of economic strategies up north to try and narrow that divide. What happened when Liz Truss got in was that there wasn't very much commitment to that. It kind of looked as though that levelling up would remain on the back burner for a very long time. Now that we've switched yet again, we have a new prime minister and we have Rishi Sunak. He's kind of re-emphasised his commitment to levelling up. And in doing that, he's put Gove, Michael Gove, back as the secretary of levelling up, which was the position that he held under Boris Johnson. He kind of defined these kind of loose meanings around what is quite a a difficult agenda to understand like leveling up is quite vague and Michael Gove was the person that people understood to be the guy who could kind of get things done in that area Um, so him being put back in that position by Sunak is kind of signifying that they are taking that seriously so for communities in the north that's really important especially after it looked like it was kind of forgotten about under trust. And Michael Gove is seen as being a very effective operator, isn't he? Um, and somebody that you put in a in, in a department that you want to take seriously. So there is that. Do we, Jack, have any more? And the answer might be no, and that's fine. I'm going to put you on the spot here. But do, but do we have any more detail as to what levelling up will mean for this new administration, given what we've known as levelling up, which is the sort of you know the the allocation of these kind of pots of money that have been largely criticised, not least by somebody we reference a lot on this podcast, Diane Coyle, uh, who is The Economist, former advisor to the Treasury, who sort of pointed out the inadequacies in them. Do we, is, is that, uh, is it just back to these pots of money again? I mean, do we have a steer from Michael Gove or Rishi Sunak as to what levelling up might mean under them? 
Well, I mean, it'll be interesting to see because obviously during the mini budget under trust, you had these investment zones, which were kind of not so much a step in for levelling up because they they applied to anywhere in the country. So whether you were Teesside or Kent, you could apply for this uh, investment zone money or you could have these areas that were to help. Well, the investment zones were to help business thrive by having like low rates, low tax and that kind of thing. Whether or not now Rishi Sunak will just junk everything out of that idea as well, get rid of the investment zones and bring back the basically what we had before, which were levelling up grants where councils and local authorities had to apply for them. All those applications have been made, so they're going to bring, be bringing those back. It's, again, it's unsure at the minute. All that we know now, based on Rishi's brief remarks on uh, Monday, is that he was emphasising that he was committed to that uh, manifesto pledge. Okay. Um, all right, we'll keep an eye on that then, and we'll come back to it for sure. Uh, let's move on to another story that, that's been hotly discussed in Manchester over the last couple of days. Night and Day Cafe, again, Jack, is on the lips of anybody who cares about culture in Manchester, and their future once again hangs in the balance. What's going on with Night and Day Cafe? Yeah, so Night and Day, or the owners of Night and Day Cafe, will appear in court next month over an, an alleged breach of statutory noise levels. It comes after Manchester Council, I think it was last year, um, issued the venue with a noise abatement notice, which is, you know, basically saying that they're too loud. They've had general complaints by residents in the area. That I think it's worth men- understanding like what Night and Day is as well. Like This is a bar that specialises in live music performance, so there's obviously going to be noise coming from there. Um, the idea that it could be given a noise abatement thing is just kind of... It's like giving a noise abatement notice to the O2 Arena or something. Like It just doesn't really make any sense. This is a place that is, exists to have live music in it, which is loud, and it brings into question that kind of age-old debate of lots of residents moving into an area where these sort of cultural hotspots already were in the first place and then demanding that they change to accommodate to their new sort of lives I suppose so it's a really big debate in Manchester it's been a debate for years I mean you remember I think it was oh what's his name how have I forgot this guy's name he's like the most important Tony person. Wilson Tony Wilson thank you that's a terrible person how dare you Jack to you forget. cannot yeah. appear on a Manchester podcast and not have Tony Wilson at the tip of your tongue how dare you well, <laughs> I'm from Salford I don't it's what I have to do um, yeah Tony Wilson he argued for a while that anyone move or argued in one news package should I say that anyone moving into Manchester should sign a little agreement to say that I will accept the fact that this is a city with live music venues in it and I'll accept the fact that it's loud and I won't complain about it obviously that hasn't happened uh, the council have issued this notice they've broken this notice uh, of they've been in breach of this and yeah they go in a court over it and they could close shockingly enough over this so it is a it is very important and quite worrying I guess is this is this a moment where this story that's been rumbling for for years and years and years now, as you say, I think it was the year 2000 that Tony Wilson did that package on the television where he talked about this problem, residents coming into areas like this and complaining about the noise. Um, do, do you think that, that this story comes to a head here? That that if, if night and day are... Because if night and day are judged to have breached this noise thing, which actually they, they could very well... Cause you know, Manchester Council did apply them a noise notice, didn't they? That they're not allowed to hit, you know, certain, you know, go over certain noise thresholds. If if it has found that, you know, literally found that they had, the court may be may may have its hand tied, and it may have to, you know, judge it as such, and then therefore the next natural step is to close it down. If that happens, 
there would be uproar, wouldn't there? I mean, I just cannot see that that happening and, and people accepting that. Yeah, I mean, it would be a massive kind of reversal of what the council talk about, what people in Manchester talk about all the time, which is, you know, we're so proud of our music and our art scene and that sort of thing, to then close down one of the most historic music venues for, you know, breaking an abatement order. It doesn't really... It doesn't chime very well with that self-image. So I think that would bring quite a lot of, um, like you say, outrage out of people uh, over that. I'd also argue what sort of precedent does it set from there? Does that mean that you can close other music venues down afterwards purely because people have now moved into, you know, areas that weren't even flats 10 years ago but have since been converted into flats and now the people living in them can just complain to the council and get these age-old music venues shut down. I think that would be kind of worrying and also just run completely contra to how Manchester sort of sees itself and describes itself. So I, I think it would be it reaching ahead, but it would also be questioning what the future would hold if this sort of precedent is set, really. Mm, yeah, very, very good point. Well, well made. Elsewhere this week, um, there is a, again, we'll keep an eye on that story. I'm tempted to stop saying we'll keep an eye on that story because, of course, just naturally we're going to keep an eye on these stories. But those two in particular, <laughs> the, the future of levelling up and the night and day cafe, we will definitely keep an eye on. Elsewhere this week, buildings that are being bulldozed around Manchester on what is described as counterfeit street, a part of Bury New Road, Jack, that has been uh, long dogged by shops selling counterfeit goods. Where are we at with this? What is this? Yeah, so there's been a very kind of big crackdown on this street, Berry New Road in Cheatham Hill. Um, for years, it's been kind of a place where you often hear GMP are going there, seizing millions of pounds worth of counterfeit goods and, and that kind of thing. But it's only now that this sort of crackdown has happened and they're talking about essentially bulldozing these buildings uh, that contain these counterfeit sellers or for years have contained these counterfeit sellers. It's interesting that it kind of links in at a similar time as Manchester being in the kind of early stages of working out what it wants to do with the general area around Berry New Road, which you can call strange ways essentially. It's the area around the prison. And that's somewhere that they want to they want to build like multi-million pound college campuses there and basically remake the entire area. And I guess you could kind of argue that this is the first step is by removing these big areas of counterfeit goods selling that have been there for decades now. I mean personally when we talk about this in the office, I remember we were talking about this a few months ago, there would be the argument that counterfeit sellers basically it's quite odd that this sudden moral imperative has sprung up that we need to bulldoze these places that house counterfeit sellers. There is also the argument that naturally counterfeit selling areas attract other kind of crime and other kind of organised crime. That's what GMP is saying, is that you basically, it becomes an area that organised crime groups are attracted to and it becomes a kind of hub for other kinds of crime. Uh-huh. Which I suppose is a pretty good argument. And it, it, like I say, it dovetails perfectly with these plans to remake the area around Strangeways Prison. Um, but yeah, it's certainly an interesting development. It's a really big move from GMP and the council. And because it, it feels a bit like something they've been trying to grapple with for a while, right? And they've been sort of tinkering around the edges, and there's been a raid here and a raid there and a warning here and a warning there. And, and just finally, the, the, the question I suppose is, Jack, and you sort of alluded to it there, is that 
you know, the, 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 I mean, it's 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 tough on crime, tough on the causes of crime, isn't it? As uh, as Tony Blair and Gordon Brown once said, is the causes of this issue are also there to be dealt with, aren't they? Because you can flatten the road, you can you can sort of break up the ecosystem, I suppose, by shoving these people out. But they are eventually going to end up somewhere else, aren't they? They are eventually going to there is going to be another part of Greater Manchester that becomes a hotbed of counterfeit shops and goods, isn't it? Is that just the, just the sort of natural rhythm of these things? Yeah, exactly. The I mean, I suppose Berry New Roads always had this very, you know, that kind of reputation, not least because of how close to the city centre it is and how, you know, I don't know if you've ever been up and down Berry New Road. I've walked, when I've been reporting on stuff around strange ways and talking to people there, that's the way that I walk into town. And it is jarring how, how much the cityscape, so to speak, changes when you basically enter that part of town mm. is a very different feel and yeah you're right really it'll just move further mm. away from the city center once they clear these people or these areas and knock down these units or whatever they plan on doing i mean yeah you probably are right it probably won't change the root of these problems that's the difficulty isn't it and that's the challenge for greater manchester police and the council i suppose is tackling the causes of crime not just the crime itself <laughs> which is the yeah, the difficult bit it's the difficult i mean bit. everyone focuses on the counterfeit selling part but this is an area that's you know as the police say is quite synonymous with stuff like cannabis farming which attracts other kinds of crime like human trafficking and that sort of thing so getting rid of these areas where this kind of crime can be committed not easily but you know where it has been committed for a very long time it is a good idea in in that respect, but like you say, they'll just move somewhere else. They'll move to Oldham, like we saw the mill in Oldham that burnt down recently. Um, that was because of a cannabis farm there. There's not, yeah, you make a really good point. I, I don't really know how to answer, but the, the the root of crime thing is is difficult to pin down. Yeah, I, th- I think if you didn't know how to answer that, Jack, uh, you'd be earning lots of money probably uh, by from somebody. Somebody would somebody somebody would be paying you a lot of money to consult. I used to live in the Green Quarter as well, by the way, so I used to live right on top of that, and you really do feel it. You really really feel it. Um, okay, um, speaking of the way that the city looks, the pedestrianisation. In, I'm sort of like tempted to break into Alan Partridge here and talk about the pedestrianisation of Manchester City Centre. Let's have a big debate about the pedestrianisation of City Centre. That is uh, big on the agenda again, Jack, and lots of people talking about the way the city looks and feels um, and, and, and how we pedestrianise places. Yeah, so we covered this on Monday. I spoke to a few people in the council and various activists around this kind of issue and pedestrianization is like a really hot topic in the in the city center particularly now and, and definitely since the pandemic because you kind of had these areas around the northern quarter closed off to make room for outdoor seating which was obviously a really important part of uh sort of reopening restaurants and bars and the council now have gone about sort of setting that setting that stuff in stone making it permanent permanently pedestrianised. But what a lot of people argue is that the council just don't really move quick enough with these kinds of schemes, that they are really ambitious enough in comparison to other European cities. And I can kind of see where they're coming from. I mean, when you look at what's happened with Stevenson Square, so Stevenson Square, massive square in the Northern Quarter, huge potential for pedestrianisation. It was completely blocked off during the pandemic, all but for one road, um, which I can't remember the name of, but one road that buses were going through. And they've now Stevenson managed... Square? Stevenson Square, yeah. They've now managed to basically get that three-quarters pedestrianised as a kind of compromise with bus companies, which a lot of people were kind of irritated with because they just... 
people who are very proactive travel, pro-pedestrianisation, want to see like complete pedestrianisation of areas, like the sort of things that you do see in other European cities like Amsterdam and Bilbao or wherever I was in. You know, I went to Seville the other week with my friends and spent virtually all of my time just complaining about, oh, why can't we have it like this at home and that kind of thing. I think that's sort of something that people get used to doing when they go on holiday now, but <laughs> I was constantly Especially doing that. Especially to the Everyone's Netherlands. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. These kind of areas where you just think, what what's actually stopping us from having this sort of thing? And I think that's kind of the argument is what's stopping the council from just moving harder moving faster with this stuff. As pointed out by lots of people, it's a very easy win doing this in the city centre. A lot of the voters who live in the city centre are mostly moving around on foot or, or using public transport. They don't require cars a lot of the time. They're also living in the city centre for less amounts of time than people who live in the suburbs. So when I was speaking to Gary Wheeler, who's the councillor for Piccadilly, he pointed out that when you try to make these sea changes in suburbs where people have lived there for a very long time they've got very used to using their cars to get around as you need to in the suburbs you meet a lot more opposition than you do in the city centre when it comes to like Manchester's net zero ambitions you you aren't going to reach those ambitions by only pedestrianising or only cutting traffic in the city centre you need to do it across all of Manchester and eventually all of the region which is a whole different matter entirely I think yeah, it is, isn't it? And you either, I mean, you're either pedestrianising somewhere or you're not, aren't you? I mean, you can't pedestrianise somewhere but let buses through and then yeah, maybe exactly. let taxis through a little bit, other bit. And then, do you know, yeah, I mean, it's either pedestrianised or it isn't, isn't it? <laughs> Let's be honest about it. Um, a lot okay. of people have um, made an interesting point when it comes to cutting cars out. It's also making that harmony between pedestrians and cyclists because there's so much to do with active travel now and cycle paths and that kind of thing. But mm. a lot of people that you speak to, a lot of people in our comments, were equally kind of taken umbrage with cyclists as much as they were with cars. So it's how do you separate those two things or or make sure that they can exist harmoniously in the city centre is, is another challenge as well, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, a couple of quick hits before we move on, and we'll talk about your uh, private investigator story in a minute as well. Just a quick one on Urban Splash, a mansion house. This is a story you've been following in the mill for a little while. What's going on? Yeah, so we've heard from residents in Mansion House, which is this big new development on the New Islington Marina, that there is quite a few problems with living conditions there. These are places, you know, apartments that start at about 320 grand. So it was part of Urban Splash's modular arm, which was called House by Urban Splash, which went into administration earlier this year. And Mansion House opened last year, and the problem is basically... A lot of these residents, since it went into administration, have been left with these issues and are struggling to resolve them, basically. That's kind of the the nutshell of that story. But we'll be publishing a piece on that today from the perspective of podcast listeners. But tomorrow, from our recording perspective, we'll be doing that in Thursday's newsletter. So. Brilliant. Okay, so hopefully that will be in your inbox today slash Thursday if you're listening to this on Thursday or yesterday if you're listening on Friday or two days ago if you're listening. Okay, you get the idea. Uh, Manchestermill.co.uk is where you go to subscribe uh, to get that. And just finally, Jack, Sergio Aguero's uh, shirt, who used to play for Man City, of course, the famous shirt that he was wearing during that famous goal that won them the title is up for auction. Is that right? That's right, and it's stained with champagne and dirt which also <laughs> adds, adds to the appeal if you ask me brilliant yes it does how, how, how much are we talking about it's expected to go for at least 20 grand uh which for an unwashed shirt is pretty good 
I wish I could get 20 grand for my unwashed shirts, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe one day, Jack, you will. Maybe one day you will. Okay, uh, good stuff. That's you up to date. Before we go, I'll give you some nods for the week ahead as well. I just want to talk to you, Jack, about a brilliant piece that you have in the Mill newsletter from the weekend where you've been spending some time with Greater Manchester's private investigators. Who are we talking about here? Well, that's just the problem, isn't it? You can't say. Um, it's quite difficult to say who you are talking about. A lot, of, Well, all but one went off the record. One guy called Simon Atkin, who runs a company called X3 Surveillance, and he also runs a secondary company called Lie to Me, which is a lie detection company. And he, he actually has a few interests around the country, but he, he's based in Manchester. He's the only one who I was allowed to name. The rest were off record, as you could imagine, because they like to keep things quite private and like to keep to themselves. But they're a really interesting bunch of people, as you could imagine. But yeah, I've spent about six months getting to know them, so having various conversations about the work that they do. I think private investigators are kind of mythical figures. So being able to like actually speak to one and report on what their work is like in the real world, it's nowhere near as exciting as you would, you know, the films or Pulp Fiction kind of portray. It's not like hanging around in shadowy alleys with a cigarette dangling from your mouth. It's more like sitting in a really hot van taking pictures of someone's house all day while they never leave the house. It's very boring, supposedly. The original idea was for me to go out on a job with them, but none of them would let me, unsurprisingly. But yeah, I think in Manchester it's interesting because it operates in a way that other areas of the country don't. So the biggest... Well, what the main part of the story was, or one of the main parts of the story, was how this group of local Greater Manchester private investigators have essentially made, like, they've built themselves a monopoly where they share all of the work between each other. So their biggest competitors are big national companies that can kind of send anyone anywhere in the country, offer any kind of service to everyone. And these guys each specialise in one thing. So one will be the lie detector guy, one will be the surveillance guy, one will be the guy who checks if a place is bugged with secret recording devices. And they'll each advertise as being able to do all those jobs. And then say if the lie detection guy gets a bug sweeping job, he'll just tell the other guy to do it for him. So they'll subcontract all the work to each other. So it creates a kind of system that snubs out anyone else from Manchester. So it's quite clicky. And I thought that was really funny because when they were telling me about it, they were like, yeah, yeah, we've got it working really well. And it was all kind of like, you know, this is how we do it in Manchester and so on. As if the nationals don't know that that's what they're doing. And then I rang up a national and they were like, no, we know that that's what they do. <laughs> it really right, was. right. But um, wow. yeah, okay. they're, a, they're a really interesting bunch. And obviously I heard a lot of gossipy matrimonial stories about men who have whole separate on, families. I'm trying to do this in a way that will protect the identity of the person. I think it's <laughs> Yeah, do there that. There was uh, a woman who had been married for a very long time to a man in Stockport and had suspected that he might have been having a sort of extramarital affair. And one of the PIs who I spoke to tracked his car, which would you believe it is a legal thing to do? I had to Google that like 40 times, like surely that's not right, but it is. And ended up following him to Birmingham where he found that he had a whole separate family. Oh, wow. So it was way worse than just a, well, I mean, a fling is still quite bad. Just your usual affair isn't ideal, but to find that someone's got a whole other family (laughs) on the go is uh, another thing. That's quite serious, actually, isn't it? It's really serious. I mean, there was loads. There was one guy who rang me who couldn't speak about one of his clients because they were being sanctioned for the war in Ukraine. 
Wow, my God. So I was like, wow. So that's like an oligarch. And he was like, couldn't say, mate. I was like, sounds like an oligarch. But um, (laughs) (laughs) that was really interesting. Yeah, it was a really fun piece to work on. I bet it was. Blimey. Okay, you can read that in full then at manchestermill.co.uk. It's one of the most recent pieces from earlier this week, uh, from last weekend. Uh, Jack Dulhanty out and about with Greater Manchester's private investigators. Well, brilliant, brilliant bit of journalism. Manchestermill.co.uk is where you go to subscribe. Uh, okay, Jack, take us into the Mill newsroom where you currently are, my friend, and uh, and what you're working on. What's uh, coming up on the horizon? So as I said, tomorrow we're, we're going ahead with our Urban Splash thing. Molly's been working on a piece covering how difficult it is to cover incidences of spiking in, in the city centre, which I think will be a really interesting one. I've been looking at Chinatown because I think it's it's kind of lacked coverage since the pandemic. There was a lot of stuff covering, you know, like the stigma surrounding the area when the pandemic first you know, kicked in when the lockdowns first started, but now it's kind of beginning to make its comeback and it's really interesting. And at the same time, you have these bigger, uh, kind of sleeker, fancier versions of Chinatown that are opening in other parts of the city and how do all these things link together? So that's um, what I'm covering at the minute. And then we've also had a bunch of people getting in touch regarding a recent development over Manchester Confidential. I don't know if you saw that on um, on Twitter, but... The restaurant Marais, which opened its uh, Manchester restaurant, I think this year, on Lincoln Square, put on a post from the publisher and founder of Manchester Confidential, Matt Garner, who was basically suggesting that they were really quiet. He said they were dead as a doornail and that it was because he basically implied it was because they didn't advertise with Manchester Confidentials. And it's kind of opened up this slew of other operators with similar stories so i've had a lot of people getting in touch with that which is quite about that which is quite interesting uh, and, and we're going to be covering that soon as well okay brilliant lots and lots to get our teeth into there then we'll look forward to that manchestermill.co.uk is where you subscribe to get that brilliant journalism in your inbox and jack before we go let's um give a nod for something to do over the next couple of days is there anything on your radar in the greater manchester please what are you recommending for us uh yeah so i We'll be having a look at the Manchester Vintage Kilo Sale. I love Kilo Sales. I think they're quite cool. You pay a general admission to get in, and then when I say vintage, I mean like vintage clothes. You can basically get, there's about, I think there's something like nine tons of vintage stock at every sale. You can pick up a kilo of it and take a kilo of everything, and no matter what you've picked up, it's just £20 a kilo, which I think's. A really fun way to shop. I went, I dropped by the one at Manchester Cathedral just as it was closing the other week because I was taking pictures of a window. Anyway, that's another story. But it looks really good. Highly recommend it. You get loads of clothes for far cheaper than you would, you know, if you were, one shirt costs £20 in most places now, but you can get a kilo of shirts for £20 here. So yeah, I recommend that. Oh, brilliant, excellent. Uh, my nod is the new exhibition that's opened at the Science and Industry Museum. You might have seen this. It's had quite it's had national attention, this one. Turn It Up, The Power of Music, uh, which is an exhibition that explores music and its sort of mysterious hold over us and how it drives us to feel a certain way. There's some really nice bits about how, uh, and uh, you, this might not be unfamiliar to you, but kind of like supermarkets and retail outlets use the power of music to persuade us to buy certain things. There's been some studies about the way, I think they, they did a study in a wine shop, apparently, 
apparently, according to the guy who's helped curate this uh, exhibition, that suggests that if you are in, in a shop buying some wine and they play some music, you know, a certain type of music persuades you to buy French wine, a certain type of music uh, makes it more likely that you will buy German wine and stuff like that. Really fascinating, really, really fascinating. The power of music to make us do things and feel things uh, on display at the Science and Industry Museum from now right through till May next year. So you've got plenty of time to go see that uh, if you fancy it. Um, that's it from us for this week. Don't forget to like and subscribe to the podcast. You'll get it in your podcast feed like this every Thursday. We'll give you a roundup of everything that's going on in Greater Manchester. And you can get more quality journalism like this by subscribing at manchestermill.co.uk. But for now, Jack, thank you. Thank you. See you soon. Bye-bye.